Hello, welcome to the extra credits of 1001. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. It feels really good to come on the microphone and talk about great movies. <laughs> movies, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Like, we've had a lot of great television this year with, you know, Last of Us was good and Succession is phenomenal. Our favorite It's been show. so much fun yeah, catching up that on week that to week, yeah. every week. But it has been really nice to just now talk about movies for the first time, I feel like, in four or five months. <laughs> And I guess we talked a lot about Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid this yeah. week. And now I think as we're getting closer to summertime, we're getting some movies that I think are going to come back toward the end of the year around award season. And this is one of them, 1001. Yeah, yeah. or even How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which yeah. you'll be talking to the director this week. Yeah, we're going to be speaking with writer-director Daniel Goldhaber about Pipeline this weekend. We'll be putting that out next week. Go check that out at a theater near you. And I actually think we have so many good movies at this point that we could do a recommendation pod or a best of list eventually over the next yeah few weeks. i think once we have a chance to catch up on a few that we haven't seen yet for sure but today we're talking about av rockwell's a thousand and one this is her debut feature and one of the best movies this year so yeah, far yeah and after we talk about the movie today i have a conversation with writer director av rockwell about her career and this film so definitely stay for that conversation she is a millennial filmmaker who i think has a real talent for creating cinematic, authentic stories. And I think we're going to see a lot more from her. Yeah, and I'm so excited to talk about why I love this movie today and listen to your conversation. I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to do that. But before we jump in, go see this in theaters to support this movie. Absolutely. It's also available to stream right now. And this conversation today and the one with AV, I think Trey, has no spoilers, no major spoilers. Yeah. Um, until maybe the end of your conversation where you warn people though, right? Yeah, I did warn people. I think it's kind of uncommon in press or interviews for for I think filmmakers to talk about their movies with spoilers but I did ask about something toward the end but I do warn all the listeners because there is a pretty shocking reveal at the end of this movie that will catch people off guard for us I think the surprising unpredictability of this story really works yeah. especially some of the subtext that me and AB do get into in that spoiler section but man I was so impressed by this movie I was excited to see it originally when I read the log line like a month ago because we've tried our best to stop watching trailers as yeah. much. And so I didn't really watch a trailer for this one. And when we checked it out a few weeks ago, I was expecting a very serious drama with like just a weighty text about poverty and gentrification. And there are certainly like a lot of socioeconomic ideas about systemic discrimination at the core of this movie. But one of the reasons I think this is the best movie of the year or right next to Bo is Afraid is because of this relationship between this mother and her son. Mm -hmm. And some might feel like they've seen stories like this movie, but I would challenge anyone to find more than one or two reference points for movies that are like this. I really think this is a rare original family melodrama that isn't supposed to be as cinematic as it is. Like there are literal thriller adjacent elements to this story that really took me by surprise. And I think mm -hmm. AV and her team create this like really convincing and consuming atmosphere with a real texture that immerses you into a pretty difficult story uh, to be in. And so I think it's refreshing to have a dramatic film that is trying to be a, a great movie while also taking on the difficult challenge of redefining some misconceptions about womanhood and specifically black womanhood, which AV and I get into. Rockwell said she wanted to contextualize black womanhood in a more authentic way because so many women don't see themselves accurately portrayed on screen. And sometimes those misrepresented stories can have serious harmful effects. Mm -hmm. So for like a first feature, I think there are a lot of stakes in this movie. And I, I at the very least 
have to respect what the movie is doing. But then by the end of the film, you're like, wow, how is this a first time feature? This is incredible. So I love what Rockwell did here. Yeah, I'm not sure what I was expecting going in again. We didn't see a trailer, but I knew it was going to be a genre. I actually didn't see the mystery uh, like Mm -hmm. tagline until after the movie when I was Googling it to see what people had said about it. And I really loved this story. And and like how you said, the texture that A.V. Rockwell was able to create in the setting and the character storylines, it really depicts these like larger obstacles like poverty, gentrification, state violence. Yeah, totally. But doing it in a way where it shows how it actually functions in a person's life and Mm -hmm. and affects their life. So you're right. We, We don't have that many stories that do that. And especially for women, but especially for black women. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get into this movie. Is that a nest? I the perms and the weeds. I thought she moved to another shelter. Nah, you know I was in Rutgers. I really missed you, girl. Yeah, and the power ladies roots too. What you been doing? What you been doing? Nothing yet, the roots makes you too. Terry, just let me see your eyes so I know you're not mad at me. I'm staying out of trouble this time. Tell me more about your foster mother. You like her? Would it make you feel better if you came and stayed with me? Yeah. So, little background on A.V. Rockwell. She grew up in Queens, went to NYU. I think she took a trip to Paris. We'll get into it in our conversation, but she was inspired to make movies there. And she comes back to New York, joins the Open City Mixtape series, where she directs some really interesting shorts that I'll link in the description to this episode. I think some of those shorts could be made into features. The stories there are, are pretty convincing of what life is like living in New York City. And when she graduated school around 2013, she spends almost a decade working on commercials and other shorts. There was a very popular one with Alicia Keys that she directed called Gospels. Mm-hmm. And then an incredible short a few years ago called Feathers. I'm going to link that in the description. I recommend people watch that. It's only 20 minutes. And I think it's a good like appetizer to going to see a thousand and one. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. And you can tell in this work that she's been doing over the past decade that she's not a newcomer to movies and storytelling. She's been mastering the feel of the city of New York city and its effect on people who live beneath it. Those who are most impacted by structural inequities. And there is a fascinating through line, I think in her work that connects to a thousand and one, which is, She keeps coming back to the disorienting effects of generational trauma, but I don't think she's that cynical where most directors would be, to me at least. I actually think there's something caring and genuine about her approach to tackling trauma. Like She has a real Mm -hmm. talent for reframing someone's difficult past as an asset to cope and then also as an asset to find community with other people who have similar devastating past lives. So I think she's been a special storyteller for almost a decade now, and I really enjoyed kind of prepping for our conversation, seeing all this work she's done over a decade, because now I'm totally, I, I bought all the stock. Like I'm there yeah. for the, her next movie. <laughs> and I'm really hoping this film, 1001, can really put her on the map. So again, to everyone, no major spoilers here, but I think we should just get into the story a bit deeper. Yeah. So 1001 is sort of in a few chapters, I guess three yeah. chapters. You follow a young mother and her son through the 90s to the early 2000s. And the lead of this film is Tiana Taylor who is incredible as the mother Inez. Amazing. It's like legitimately a star-making performance. I can't wait for people to see just that performance alone and then the the bigger appeal, which is how good this movie is. And so you have this character, Inez, who is trying to make sure that her son, Terry, has opportunities that she didn't have in her youth. So a pretty universal 
story here. And as Inez and Terry go through this decade together, their home in Harlem and New York City goes from being a kind of a motivating, empowering environment to becoming like this inescapable threat that's Mm -hmm. looming all around them at all times to their family. So much like I think the best directors of New York City films, like a Spike Lee or Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. They make New York City or the city feel alive, I guess, and almost like a monster to whatever the lead character is, like attacking someone. And that's what the city feels like in this case, like it's attacking Inez and her son. And so Rockwell does just such a remarkable job. Yeah, it does feel like a, a looming threat and similar to those directors that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, those are influential directors to her, I believe. So, But she does such a good job, I think, of illustrating these effects of systemic discrimination, systemic oppression, because every system of the city is preying on Inez and Terry, from foster home systems to hospitals to the education system, law enforcement. Like, mm-hmm. It was so refreshing to see that the biggest obstacle of this mom wasn't necessarily like this stereotypical plot device, like insert this plot device that so many movies use. Instead, here we really see a mother trying so hard to just keep her family together, almost like a grounded superhero story. And I mean that as like the greatest compliment I can give this movie. And I think trying to frame Inez as fighting against institutions could actually go wrong in different hands and would feel inauthentic. Like Mm -hmm. someone could have made this movie unnecessarily sentimental or stuffed it with like dramatic tropes. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in my extra credits. Good, because I think that is what makes this movie so special because there is like this urgency to this story and how the themes connect to our contemporary world. Like the crippling effects of gentrification and political corruption on this family are very real and human because Inez and Terry and all the other characters in this film are complicated because of what these institutions are doing to them. Like they are vulnerable because of the city's impact on this family. And so Rockwell writes these characters with such realistic strengths but also flaws Mm -hmm. and she fully contextualizes them in that way. So Rockwell, I think makes it very transparent that the family is being attacked by the city. And this family is always in defense mode because of this. And every single minute of the movie, you're looking at Inez just like unapologetically being herself because she will do anything to protect her son and make sure that he is provided for. So she's written in such a careful and precise way where I don't actually think Rockwell is writing this character to gain sympathy from the audience at all. Or I don't think the character of Inez in the story cares about the sympathy of other characters in the movie because really what she's doing is trying to protect herself and her son Mm -hmm. at all costs, which I think is a big sign for special writing. And that's what I I love about this script, first and foremost, which is what I talked to AV about, which is so funny because when you watch the movie and you walk out, you're like, how is this so cinematic? This is incredible for a melodrama to make me feel like, uh, every, every form of this movie, every part of the form of this film is hitting me on different levels. But I think what really stands out here is the script. Yeah. And speaking of the script, I want to go ahead and give my extra credit here because okay. my extra credit goes to the way that A.V. Rockwell writes an imperfect person yeah. and a real version of motherhood through Inez that we don't often get. Like we get a lot of commercial mom stories through the eyes of men specifically. Yeah. And usually the mother character in these movies is either like in the background or a projection of the impact a mother had on the writer or the character in the story. Yeah. Like a mom who feels sedated, quiet, depressed, or 
really angry, right? Mm -hmm. And elevated. Like even in amazing movies like Boogie Nights or Bo's Afraid, which we just recently (laughs) watched, right? There's this exaggerated version of a story that focuses more on the impact my mother had on me. Yeah. And so it's not often that we get a character who is a mother with her own fully developed story that feels fully realized. And I think A.V. Rockwell captures an imperfect person who is really doing her best to provide for her child who you deeply empathize with as we watch her in a corner, right? For this movie from the beginning. And she's trying to fight her way out and she has to harden herself to survive emotionally and physically, like as the city is being gentrified. Mm -hmm. And normally in stories, we see how many like men navigate this emotional toll of life. Um, We just (laughs) see like men going through these kind of crushing circumstances of the world. Yeah. But we don't get that a lot for women, right? Um, and Or in a way that feels real. Yeah. And Or like true to life, especially with mothers. And we get it in ways, maybe specifically in dramas, where we have a lot of like family stories that are important and do have an impact on viewers and mm-hmm. people like see themselves in those stories. But mostly like I, I feel like women's stories are sanitized yeah. in a way, right? Or they'll become tropes and exaggerated. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're getting, you know, more authentic stories the the more writers we have that who are women. Yeah. But also I think men are being like held to a higher standard to not just have a woman who's like a background character. Yes. But for AV Rockwell's 1001, I really want to give attention to one scene in particular that really captures what I think she's going for in writing an imperfect person, but in that way someone who is empowering. That feels really true to life. And that's the scene where Inez is sitting in her bed, watching TV, eating a cup of noodles, laughing and just tears running down her face. And I mean, not only is this an incredible performance from Tiana Taylor, but this is a scene women and mothers do not get right. And men get all the time. Like even in movies I really like that have emotional devastating stories with like a family drama at the center, like marriage story or like Manchester by the sea. Right. We have a father story like as the focus, or even when we have like in marriage story, a, the like other partner in the picture, it's still focused on like Adam driver's lens. That one's still up for debate. That's I think our take on that movie. I'm not sure everyone shares that, but at least that's how I I think I feel. I think it does side with the bound back. Yeah. A little bit. But the point I think I'm trying to make here is that even in stories that are seemingly dealing with like a family's, you know, trauma or like specifically a man and a woman going through a separation, mm-hmm. the stories tend to be more sympathetic towards men. Yeah. Um, we have so many, I think just like film in general, right? It, the majority of it is watching men go through like crushing experiences. Yeah. And I mean, the, the film, the genre of the dr- drama originally started as basically like, the isolated, depressed, lonely man. Yeah. And then women are basically objects and used as like plot tools through yeah. a lot of those original stories. Yeah. We never get like the sitting down, eating a cup of noodles uh, for, <laughs> for a woman, right? No, that's yeah. why that scene's so special. Yeah. And that's why we need more like women writing stories, you know, so we can see more honest portrayals of imperfect people mm-hmm. navigating obstacles in life, especially Inez, whose character has multiple barriers that are compounding in her life, right? As like a black mother living in New York City. Yeah, that was actually a really tragic moment because, I mean, I don't want to step on the emotions of that moment for anybody who hasn't seen the film, but when Inez starts tearing up, 
Mm-hmm. It's one of the primary moments of the movie where you're like, one of the main moments of the movie where you're like, wow, this is emotionally uh, devastating. Yeah. So my extra credits, I'm kind of cheating here because I'm not actually going to explain my extra credits okay. because it would spoil <laughs> the movie and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I'm going to talk about a little bit just about the end of the film. Okay. And I think this is where people will be divided about how they feel about this movie because I think people will respect this movie and I've read critic reviews of this and it seems like people like the movie, but anything about the movie that doesn't sit right with them, if they had to pick one thing, would be the ending. And I think a lot of viewers might find themselves suspending disbelief at the end. Yeah. And that might take some people out of a mostly grounded movie for what happens at the end. But to me, the exaggerated element to the end of this film was actually a pretty potent metaphor. And I think it said a lot about found family and the lengths people will go to support their community when their institutions don't represent them Mm -hmm. or worse are preying on them. So I hope people think about what the end of this film means to Inez and her arc. I'm being cryptic right now because I don't want to spoil it again. But I think people will appreciate it more after hearing this conversation about the about the movie and trying to understand what the end is actually saying. Um, And I'm going to cheat again (laughs) by not fully explaining uh, more extra credits. I'm just going to add on to this. I just want to give more recognition to the incredible balance of the two major tones of this movie. There is this family dynamic and unprocessed trauma of Inez and Terry throughout the whole movie that kind of holds it together. Mm -hmm. But there's also this backdrop of political corruption and discriminatory practices that we've been talking about this episode, like over-policing and gentrification and redlining, like major institutional problems are happening in the periphery of this family melodrama. And that balance is just so difficult to pull off and it's executed so well. So again, the script is amazing. Yeah, everyone go see this movie in theaters near you, AMC, Regal, I think it's still in those theaters. We saw it at the Angelica, so maybe it's playing at a kind of more independent uh, theater near you too. Yeah. And before we get to your conversation with A.V. Rockwell, for new listeners, we have a lot coming up. Mm-hmm. Bo is Afraid Deep Dive, uh, <laughs> part two. We already did our part one. If you already saw it, maybe you're in L.A. or New York. That deep dive was a, this weekend. a wild podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but part one's already out if you want to hear our thoughts on the wild movie that is Bo is Afraid. Yeah. We have a conversation with the writer, director of How to Blow Up a Pipeline coming next week. Yes. A conversation with Sean Fennessy from The Ringer and Big Picture about Damien Chazelle's filmography. A ton of fun. Episodes of Succession every week with seasons two and three deep dives on their way. And don't forget to follow our podcast on Spotify and Apple. Shoot us five stars. We're an independent show, so we really appreciate your support. And it really goes a long way to growing our community. So let us know what you enjoy about our show on Apple Reviews. And we have our 100th episode coming up soon, which we're going to do a mailbag for that episode and answer listeners' questions. So you can email us if you have any questions for us about our show, uh, any longtime listeners, new listeners. And if you don't follow our social, we'll also put something on our story, I'm sure, in the next week or so, asking uh, what you want to know. And that 100th episode basically acts as our one-year anniversary, which we're a little over at this point, but we just thought it would be cool to combine both of those. Yeah, (laughs) we'll act like it's our official one-year anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that was the extra credits of 1001. Now, here's the conversation with A.V. Rockwell. So, like I said, our show, The Extra Credits, recognizes movies that we find have meaning. And your film, A Thousand and One, is our favorite movie of the year so far, my co-host Kelsey and I. 
And it's not that it's just socioeconomically relevant, like who people have seen it definitely know when it comes to gentrification or systemic racism or generational poverty, but it's also a powerful celebration of womanhood through the 90s and early 2000s. And in many ways, to me, the movie is special because it's a grounded superhero story of sorts. It's like (laughs) wrapped in a melodrama, but it is this heroic arc for our lead character. So because of that reason, we really wanted to have you on um, because I don't think I, I can think of another movie that reminds me of a story quite like this. And I know critics and pundits are probably trying to stamp other filmmakers style on you. And I'm sure a lot of the, that is probably a compliment like a Scorsese or a Spike Lee. And I, again, those are probably the best compliments any filmmaker could ever get. Uh, but I think this movie is special because of the screenplay, because it does feel like wholly original and singular and the texture of the filmmaking and the lived in performances are great. But I, I kept coming back to, after seeing this a few times with my co-host how challenging and thrilling the script is. So I think it's safe to say people are going to be watching your movies for a long time after people Mm -hmm. go to see this in theaters. So to start this conversation, I'd like to back up because I know you're not some random talent that came out of nowhere. And I like to give listeners some context of first time feature filmmakers that come on here. I've seen your shorts with Alicia Keys on Gospels and then the Excellent Feathers and even your Open City Mixtapes series. Can you talk about your early experience in film school and what it was like trying to get into the industry? You grew up in Queens and went to NYU, is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, yeah, so I went to I went to film school at NYU. I think the way I landed there, uh, I mean, I, I certainly didn't see it coming. Um, I think if when I would have been growing up, if somebody would have thrown that out to me, the idea of going to NYU at all um, just wasn't in my head, but uh, but that's where I ended up. And then the film scro- uh, program was especially, uh, you know, unexpected because I was I was studying abroad. Um, and what happened was that I, I just wanted to keep getting to know myself as an artist. It was that time in life when I felt like I always loved the arts as a kid and I wanted to know what, what was going to be my path in life moving forward. And so Around that time, I was studying uh, out there, uh, just getting to know European cinema is what gave me uh, a way into art. Uh, I mean, movies, not not only as a form of entertainment, but that it could be art as well, you know, um, and I really got a, I really got a full breadth of what you can do with it. So I was studying communications, but just fumbling around, I noticed that we had a film program at NYU. So um, so it was really just kind of like, oh, you know, this is, I didn't know you could go to school for filmmaking, but mm-hmm. I, I had always... Loved it, even though it seemed very far and mysterious as a kid. I was like, oh, if I can just go to school, I don't know what it means to go to school for and get a, an arts degree, but this feels like me. So uh, it's really only because Paris had like a 24-hour <laughs> uh, application process that I even got in. Um, but uh, I got in with storyboards. And, and then I, I think my film school experience, I don't know, I think it was a little bit all over the place, to be honest. Um, because I transferred in, I already felt like I had a, a big, a big gap. And because I didn't come from, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up watching Citizen Kane and stuff like that. I just mm-hmm. very green and I, I didn't know anything at all. Um, so I think I spent majority of the time in film school just exploring the art form. And so a lot of my work was actually like very experimental in nature. It wasn't until like towards the end of my time um, that I was like, I remember seeing Battle of Algiers and I was like, oh, wow. Like the way that movie in particular spoke to me, I was like, 
this is what I want to do as a filmmaker. This is the type of stories that I want to tell. And so it made something that I just loved for my own selfish, you know, reasons. It turned to something that could be purposeful. And I was like, oh, this is the way that I can use this art form to give back to others. So, um, so I think that was probably like the best thing that I took out of my time in undergrad. Um, and then just community. Um, I think the, the peers of mine that I still keep in touch with and we're still supporting each other, I think for it can be such a singular journey, such a lonely journey as a filmmaker because it's just you and your work in many ways. So I think us being able to be there for each other was really beautiful. Yeah, you can feel that kind of intimacy in your work too. I'm going to put some links in our podcast description for listeners because uh, especially of your earlier work, um, but your shorts for sure. But your open city work, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of shorts. The one titled uh, Trey literally stood out to me because my name is Trey. But the way you stitch together the stories of Trey and then later Larry and the dreamer was so impressive. And I loved coming back to those after watching your film. Um, because I think much like Inez in 1001, you have such a talent for exploring these like human contradictions and contextualizing everyone's gifts and flaws. So I recommend again, listeners check those out. But for one of your shorts, I think it was called kids, it really stood out to me because it was so um, haunting and devastating but also innocent because the way you capture real people and then also the characters in your work it's like very dramatically satisfying but also distressing in very human ways a lot like your feature film and there's some something so caring and passionate about your work and equally like urgent and radical about the stories you want to tell and while there are many themes in your stories that I think we'll get to today I think a through line I've observed about your shorts and your film over the past I guess decade now you're, you seem really interested in the, I guess, disorienting effects of generational trauma and maybe the kind of stories about found family or families that were born into and then the cost of those families. And obviously, again, your work is about many thing, things and we'll get, to, we'll get to that today. But do you find yourself coming back to generational cycles as a theme in your work through your shorts and now your films? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it's in there and especially in the ways that we explore it in 1001, um, not only seeing the cycles and patterns that exist, but how overwhelmingly challenging it is to break those cycles just because of how much is thrown on you and how sophisticated uh, the villains are. <laughs> you know, how, how sophisticated it is to try to fight all these different battles, you know, and, and I think we, we have to fight battle on different levels. There's the, the battle versus ourselves, the battle versus the people in our lives and us just trying to be there for each other in the best way. And then there's the, the external battles. And, and I think, uh, especially in how, how you experience it in 1001, for example, you know, I think some of those, some of those elements are, are very explicit and they have a face. Um, and some of them are a bit more covert, you know, and I think that really is the start, story of, how uh, how it has experienced the same things over and over um, through generations that we try to that we try to push back past, and I think that people don't always see that they don't see that every for every new generation there's like a new a new obstacle mm -hmm. to overcome. Um, but I think that in this process of of making these stories, I've also learned that despite the fact that we repeat the same cycles in certain ways. Uh, there's also there's also a consistency in the victories, and and I think that that's probably like the bigger thing that is proud that I'm proud of being able to take away and, and showcase because 
you know, and regardless of what the common threads are between generations, um, there's there is a difference in the progress. You know, you each generation has a little bit more than the previous had. So so mm-hmm. I'm very happy <laughs> that amongst everything, I've been able to distill that. Yeah, it definitely comes through. So let's talk a little bit deeper about 1001. From the start of the film, uh, we see Inez at Rikers, and she has a passion for her own art form. She's a hairstylist, something that we learned she deeply cares about. It's her way of giving back to her community, but it's also like an art form for her. And when she's released from prison, the blocking is really impressive because there is this low angle tracking shot that follows Inez through Harlem's like vibrant landscape with these bright colors all over the walls. I remember specifically like a red wall comes to mind and you're showing the city as like almost alive and one that's kind of proud of what it is. And the angle in which you're capturing her is that like, it looks as if she's on top of the world. Like she's finally getting this agency and she knows what she wants, which I think, you know, what she wants is to make sure uh, what's happened to her throughout her 23, I think year old life doesn't happen to her son, Terry, who we meet very soon. And then the story gets progressively more stressful as we go through the decade with Inez and Terry through the nineties and early two thousands. And we see that every system in New York city is basically preying on them um, from the foster care system to hospitals, to education and law enforcement. And I guess, you know, if New York city was on her side at the beginning of the story, the city and like systemic discrimination is her biggest obstacle by the end of the film. And it feels like she's going to lose this battle by the end of the movie. And we'll talk about that at the end with spoilers again. Um, But before we do, can we talk about a little bit uh, the challenge of trying to balance the family anxieties of Inez, Terry, and even Lucky with all of these like political and socioeconomic anxieties of New York City, because I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to try and illustrate the consequences of things like gentrification or redlining or political corruption, all of these mechanisms of discrimination and, and then showing the crippling effects on this family. What was the process like of trying to balance the family dynamics and unprocessed trauma of Inez and Terry with this backdrop of political corruption, over-policing, major institutional problems. Obviously, I think what you did was incredibly successful, but what was your experience like trying to balance those themes in writing and in filmmaking? The way I structured it was really around Inez and Terry and what their journey is, um, and really see the, the challenge of the way you know they have to fight to come together as a unit that can keep their bond intact um, and then after that, see what happens, all the things that are thrown at them, um, and including them, just the way they are growing and evolving in a way that threatens to pull them apart. But I think the through line in the movie and the way that third major character, New York City, is involved is, to me, it kind of set up the tension uh, throughout each chapter of their journey. Um, and so I think, I think just in me deciding how it was going to shape the, the arc of the story overall, uh, New York what's happening in New York really bookends uh, the, the different movements that they go through. And so, you know, we start with, with Giuliani and what his vision was for the city as they're beginning their life together. And then as they go through a phase, we see how, how, uh, how all of his visions come to life. And we see, or we hear, um, we hear and we see the ways that police brutality became a big thing um, in the later on in the nineties as his, as his, uh, time progressed. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm like, I, I just don't want to give too much of the movie away. No, you're but fine. It's fine. It, so maybe I'll try to analyze it a little bit more. 
But uh, but we see the bookends of, of his time in office. And, and so it's kind of like, okay, this is Terry Nines' journey at the beginning. This is where I when, where New York is. And let's see how what's happening in New York benefits the journey that they're on together. So by the time we get to, to Giuliani's, the end of his time in office, we see that manifest. We see how, <laughs> how that kind of um, comes together. And then from there we move, you know, there's a changing of the guard with, with Bloomberg coming into office. And we see what his vision is for Nick City. And, and we see the, the ways that again impacts the community. Um, and as we return to our characters, we see how that uh, impacts them explicitly in, what, in the journeys that they have over the first term of, of Bloomberg's years. And so I really just tried to mirror those two things, what was happening in the city and how it would have created tensions in their lives. In addition to what was also going on with Terry, like, you know, uh, the by the end of the story with where he's at in terms of becoming a young man and beginning a new chapter himself, like, I think that that kind of worked perfectly. And so uh, that's something that I kept in mind as well. Um, but and then in the filming of it, the challenge was how are we going to pull this together with, I mean, there was a lot of restrictions. I mean, it's already challenging making any indie movie uh, as mm -hmm. a period. And then. I think the pandemic made it really hard, but I think uh, you know there were so much restrictions in the city, like the 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 um, permits were so limited. Like there was there was a number of things, but I think what was my anchor was just being clear on as much as I studied the city, um, not only based off my my coming of, of age experience, but just like really a research into New York City's history, what makes a city in a city in the first a city a city in the first place. I think all that observational work that I did and research, it really informed how I looked at New York and how I could talk about it with my collaborators. Um, so even though we had to pivot and adapt to the obstacles that was thrown at us in production, uh, we were able to rise to that. And a lot of that, you know, just as an example, was like just understanding how historic New York City's grid was and the architecture that dominated it and, and would dominate any, you know, any movie photography that you would have seen of it over the past hundred years <laughs> mm. knowing like okay this is what gave new york what gave manhattan what gave harlem so much of its identity so i think knowing that i could lean on that and then just point the camera the other way once it was time to showcase what modern new york looked like uh was but was a very helpful anchor amongst you know other other things that i did to just make sure that i was translating that vision as best i could from the page so we have to talk about the ending of the movie so spoiler warning to listeners go see a thousand and one at your local theater. Support the work. Uh, like I said, we've seen it a few times. I'm sure this will be streaming soon, but this is an immersive movie that will take you through a decade of someone's life. It deserves to be seen in a theater, and it is very cinematic, um, and it's thrilling in, in very sad ways. So the big reveal at the end of the film is that Terry's biological mother is Inez, and we learn that they aren't related by blood, and that was a shocking reveal uh but like i've said today in all of your previous work you have a real talent for contextualizing flawed problems and flawed people and i think you really find something unique in how we are all contradictory and damaged and with inez it's not that uh different so she's like full of these strengths and flaws and she's also loving and a providing mother figure and also has like her own unprocessed is issues i guess and yeah. Why the movie is so great to me and my co-host Kelsey is because I think it fully convinces you to sympathize with Inez and her journey throughout the movie. 
And then the movie challenges you in a very interesting way that is morally complicated, which is that she made a decision to not let a young child spend their life in a, bro- a broken foster home system and instead raises him herself. And we learn that she doesn't want Terry to have the childhood she did. So the biggest secret of the movie is that it's essentially a crime for Inez and Terry to be together. And I think that is a genius metaphor on so many levels. And I think what really stuck with me, like I said earlier, is how Inez kind of represents a young parent negotiating their opportunities with their childs and the sacrifice that this woman has to make in order for Terry to have a better life than she did or one with more opportunities. And I think that final image of Inez smiling in the taxi, it was kind of a cathartic image because you have a black woman who has faced not only these institutional obstacles, but also obstacles in her own community. Uh, Mm -hmm. And by the end of the film, I think she's accomplished a goal of giving back to her community and Terry against all odds. So can you talk a little bit about the, the layers of what it meant for Inez to raise Terry herself and what you were hoping to achieve with this reveal that it's basically a crime for lack of a better word for Terry and Inez to be a family and that the, the state in New York city doesn't want this family to happen. Yeah. Um, I think it is, you know, very complicated, right. Um, which you spoke on earlier. I also really appreciated, you know, it was so cool to hear you call Inez, uh, you called it a superhero story. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, that's actually was in my first inklings or my first version of, of the screenplay. That's what I had in mind. I remember when I went through the, the lab, Michael Arndt, who wrote uh, Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. um, he was the first person to to echo that to me. You know, he was like, oh, no, Inez is a superhero. Like, this is a superhero story. Um, and that was like, for me, it was like, it, it kind of let me know that I was on the right track, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so that was really encouraging to hear. But obviously, I, I think the bigger thing was, Saying that, yeah, she's a superhero in many ways, but uh, but she's also a human, um, and I think that's the bigger thing that I want wanted people to see in her and to see in women like her in general, you know, black women like her in general, because it's it's great to feel like celebrated, but uh, but we need that too. We need our humanity to be seen too, um, in order for us to feel fully loved and protected and and so forth. And so um, I think the ending it does speak to just how complicating and messed up our systems are. And the fact that in order for these two people to break themselves out of a system that is designed against, uh, designed to work against them. Um, yeah, she, she did have to do it in a way that was the same thing that would also break them apart. Um, but I, I think that uh, the, the, the meaning of the ending, so much of it is about humanizing her. And you brought up the smile in, in, the, in the cab. Um, and she breaks, she breaks so many cycles. You know, I think that's like, the triumph in the story, not only in the ways that she's able to give a life to this kid that she wasn't afforded, but also in how she sees herself. I think she represents a community of women that have done what she's done uh, over generations, you know, Um, and they're doing it now. There are women out there that look just like her that are fighting those fights right now. And I think that for so long, these, these are women that haven't seen themselves. They've seen everybody but themselves. And I think by the end, Inez realizes the price of that, that she she gave so much to everyone, um, but yet she felt so defeated because she still never fully got back what she wanted, or at least that's what she she thinks when she's in the fit of rage talking to Terry in that that last table scene. But I think she realizes that I forgot to love me, you know? So as she's moving forward, uh, she's taking that with her. And, and that's something that I hope anybody who identifies with Inez could take them away from like, yeah, you can save the, everybody else, but you know, you're in the best position to fully 
show up for others uh, if you show up first for yourself, you know, and, and I think if she had, had she been more whole from the beginning, maybe she wouldn't have built the love that she had for Terry. Maybe she wouldn't have built that on a lie. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the love that she even had with Lucky would have been one where she stood up for her myself and made sure that he didn't have access to what she had to give um, unless he was, you know, act more deserving of, of that affection. So I think Inez walks away with a lot at the end, the end of the movie, but I think that the commentary that you speak on in terms of uh, the system and the way that it works, it's just, it's, 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 it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. You know, um, and, and I think that the success of the movie is it show it showcases that that even when people mean so mean so are so well intended, it can still work in a way that's just so fucked up. So it just kind of needs to be dismantled altogether in a way that uh, there's this article from '94, um, and I'm almost done. But <laughs> there's this article in '94, um, and and it was a plea. I, I posted it on my Instagram page. It was a, a plea coming from. The, the child welfare you know system and basically you know it was a plea to this new mayor Giuliani to please make sure you give us the attention give the system the attention that it's needed and obviously we see over the course of the movie that what he does give attention instead but they were like burn it throw it away like just start over from the beginning because it's just the whole it's a, it's a complete failure and I think a lot of our systems they're just designed in a way that I don't know if you can fix it I don't know if it's that you can try to improve it or you just like need to reconstruct it all, all together. So um, so I think the movie definitely alludes to that. And then the last thing I'll say is, because um, I do know that the ending, there's a lot about the ending that I think people, when they get it, they can speak with about it as beautifully as you do. But it is, it is still divisive, you know, and that's mm-hmm. okay. But I think that in the ways that it ends, especially with this reveal coming after, after uh, the, you know, there's a, the, the, after the um, distress of what's going on in the apartment, mm-hmm. um, the way Inez and Terry, it seems like they're going to lose their battle with that. It's like you can't begin to fix, re- repair the holes within a home. Um, you can't like you can't you can't fight that battle until you fix the hole within the family unit, you know, um, and within the person. You know, I think all of those things kind of compounded on another uh, because I think um, had had I left this you know let let the story end the way it did um just with the gentrification through line that that wouldn't have been me honoring what the movie was was fully about um and Inez needed to be seen Inez needed to be seen by the end of the movie um and had she felt had she been seen her entire life then she wouldn't have done what she's done in the way that she did it when it came to Terry um and had she been seen in that family you know maybe they would have been a more fortified unit together um, and, and, and strengthen the ways that they needed to to be in order to fight that bigger battle that was happening uh, in terms of those external forces. So it's like, so I think for me, it was just like, especially spe- specifically speaking for the Black community, it's like, we can't begin, we can't be in our best position to fight what's being thrown at us from the outer world until we fix what's working on, what's going on within our relationships with each other uh, as, as a community. Uh, and, and also within our, our family units. So I think all of those things kind of needed to compound on each other in that way. But but ultimately, you know, Inez, she gets the clarity that she needs. And, and I think that to our point earlier about generational cycles and stuff like that, um, they it may not feel like a complete win. I wanted to be truthful in that way, but they, they I think they got away. They moved away um, at the end of the film into their new future in a way that, 
got the, you know, they, they came, they came out of it with the success that they needed, you know? Um, I don't know if I'm wording it correctly. Sorry. No. Yeah. I think, I think anybody who wanted a clean, a cleaner ending to this movie, uh, honestly, it's a little bit condescending to the story. I think it's a really special film because it is morally complicated at the end, but ultimately, I mean, the way I interpreted it and the way Kelsey, our co-host, interpreted it, too, was that Inez found her agency at the end of the film. And yeah, she, she yeah. has her own journey. Um, and honestly, I think, and I think as a viewer, I think we're all guilty of this. We just haven't seen a lot of um, black woman leads in movies and being contextualized or humanized, even in black films that are classics. Um, and so this is one of the first movies that comes to mind where we've seen a black woman's story and journey. So I think there's like a... Uh, a little bit of a pushback. If there's any pushback, I haven't really seen much because everyone I've talked to really loves this movie. But if there is any pushback on the ending, it's because I think maybe people naturally want a more uncomplicated ending. But again, I think that would be condescending. And that's why this is... uh, And it wouldn't be truthful. Yes, exactly. But uh, I think that the point that I was trying to make was, I mean, I think everything you said is, is correct. But what I was really trying to say is that the ending, it was truthful but it was still ultimately a success. Like what the, what these two characters, you know, experienced at the end of it was a success because Inez, she wins in the ways that she spoke about explicitly. And then she she wins in the way that uh, that you talk about, which is, yeah, she gained that full sense of agency and that and not only a sense of uh, agency, but a sense of power, empowerment that she didn't have when she first started this journey with Terry. So I certainly ended it the way I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> No, I loved it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> I think it's telling that two of the best movies this year, um, I don't, you probably haven't seen it because you're so busy and every filmmaker when they're doing press for a movie can't go to the movie theater, ironically, because they're so busy. Uh, but How to Blow Up a Pipeline is doing really well right now and your movie is yeah. doing really well right now. And both of those movies are talking about these large institutional issues and then like how to blow them up, really, in different ways completely. Um, but those two movies, I think your film and their film is probably the, the best movies of, of 2023 so far. Um, so it's just a wonderful movie. Again, if, if people have gone this far and listening to this far and haven't seen the movie yet and just wanted to stay to listen to that ending, you have to have to see this in theaters now. So we end every conversation, uh, with a recommendation for the listeners by asking you what a film, uh, is that you believe deserves extra credit. That's our show, the extra credits. So we try and spread awareness of why meaningful films deserve more recognition and why people need to check them out. So is there a film from the past or present that you think deserves more credit that might be a great movie, but you think people just need to revisit? Again, I know many filmmakers aren't able to catch up with too many new releases because you're 24-7 busy with your movie releasing, but it could just be an older movie or a new movie that more people should be talking about. And it doesn't thematically have to sit with whatever you're making at the moment, whatever's coming up for you, but it's just something that you keep in the in your back pocket that you like to bring up. Like we just had Ruben Usland on and he talked about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a famous film, but he wanted to just talk about that for a few minutes. And we had the writers on from the menu and they talked about revisiting Rocky when Creed was coming out. And Zach Kreger from Barbarian told us, us all to go watch Audition. So we've had a lot of filmmakers have a wide variety of things they've uh, recommended. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, well, can I cheat and give two? Because I think Absolutely. you're two. I went from feeling like, what's my answer going to be to thinking of two? But yeah. um, so I think uh, Sound of Metal, I, I really love that was a recent movie that came out and I, and I loved it so much because, you know, movies like that, it just reminded you of the power of filmmaking and the power of storytelling to to put you into someone else's shoes and make you feel closer to other human beings. And I think the ways that it was able to 
explore what it means to be hearing uh, impaired was so successful and so beautifully done. So that was like a, a recent favorite of mine. And then an OG favorite of mine that I've, re I've been revisiting, um, it's come up to me, not, you know, I've been thinking about it as I've been talking about a thousand and one is um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? You know, I yeah. think that was one of my favorite films growing up. And I think what I love about my like my consistent favorites is that like the you know you watch them as you grow and you you find new things in them to learn and love and you see things differently as you as you mature and so uh it wasn't until I started working on this movie that I realized that that was a displacement story too in the ways that this movie is mm -hmm. um and and especially understanding so much about New York and how all of these systems work and things like that. Um, I understood it way more <laughs> than I did as a kid that it was saying the same thing. What that movie was saying about Toontown is the same thing that I was saying about Harlem, you know, and, and what makes these places great, what makes them unique. Um, and what's at stake when we just decide that we want to push them over uh, for either new communities to come in or a highway or a chain store or anything like that. Like, I think it was it was the same idea. It was it was just told in a, in a very different way. Mine obviously was <laughs> light years more grounded, but um, but it was but it was the same thing. And 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 it's and I think it it, it has made that movie even more special in my eyes because of it. So uh, yeah, I would t definitely tell people to take a look at that movie again. I love that people might do a double feature of your film and then come home and watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now I need to revisit the movie, so I'm really interested in rewatching that. Uh, yeah. Well, Avi, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for making this movie. I'm really excited for people to go see it. I'm really excited for a future next project. Are you working on anything right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it's too early to go into specifics, but I, I do feel really excited about some some ideas that I'm developing and writing, um, and what will likely be my next my next feature. So, uh, so it's a good time. I'm grateful that a thousand and one is being so well received. Thank you so much. Um, mm -hmm having me here again you know I think I've really enjoyed this conversation and I really do want people to go check it out if you listened all the way through the spoiler and you haven't seen it I'm kind of mad at you but I'll forgive you <laughs> go check it out if you go check it out regardless um and, and I hope that uh if I hope that your experience will be colored in a way that just makes you enjoy the movie that much more but but yeah this has been this has been fun so thank you so much again